I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the U.S. taxation of university endowments. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 introduced a tax on university endowment income. In today's episode, we talk about how the tax works and why it was implemented, how some people want to change it, and generally discuss whether we think it is a good idea from a policy perspective. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So we've got sort of a meta episode today. At least I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how you would describe it. Are we talking about Facebook? No, we're talking about taxing universities. And I guess that seemed sort of meta because we're two tax professors currently sitting on our university's campuses talking about taxing universities. So, I mean, that's, that's meta, right? I think the fact that you have to ask me that question means we're probably too old to be meta or, or to use that term. So me saying meta is cringe? It's not fire, that's for sure. Nicely done. <laughs> All right, well, I just thought in honor of an episode talking about universities and you know, young people, we should try to incorporate some younger, hipper lingo. Sure, and step one is to stop saying the word lingo <laughs> and stick with what you know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, all right, I'm over it. Uh, I'm, over, I'm over young hip lingo. I promise you that. Oh God, please don't say that again. So today we're gonna talk about the university endowment tax that was created by everybody's favorite Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. First, we're gonna explain what the tax is and why it supposedly exists. We'll also discuss some proposals to modify the tax and we're gonna close out the episode with an evaluation of the tax from a policy perspective so listeners can get our hot take on whether the tax is rad or whether it's gnarly. Cool beans. Thanks for playing along. I'm trying. I'll kick it off with a discussion of the tax. So as you said, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 introduced a 1.4% excise tax on university endowment income for, quote, applicable educational institutions. So there it is. Easy peasy. What's what? Uh, as if. <laughs> okay. That was from our generation. That is not young hip lingo. I know. I've given up okay. and I've gone to the 80s. All right. Fair. Uh, um, so you just throw out a bunch of words and phrases that are going to require some additional explanation. Uh, for starters, why is it an excise tax? Or maybe more basically, <laughs> what is an excise tax? Okay. Well, as listeners might recall from some recent episodes, not every organization in the U.S. is subject to income taxes. Colleges and universities are generally considered to be nonprofit organizations. Nonprofit organizations, as we've talked about before, are exempt from income tax under Section 501c3PO. Every time, every single time, <laughs> every time. Remember that 501c3 allows entities with purposes that are limited to educational activities, among some other carved out activities, to apply for tax exempt status. And they're also generally exempt from an excise tax imposed on private foundations' net investment income. Okay, Roger that. So, yes, colleges and universities, at least many of them anyway, are nonprofit organizations exempt from income tax. So if we want to tax them, it probably has to be a different kind of tax, like an excise tax. Exactly. All right. So continue, please, with an explanation of what in the world is, quote, an applicable educational institution. For sure. This, this is where it gets kind of fun. All right. So roughly speaking, it's a college or university that is accredited 
and participates or is at least eligible to participate in federal financial aid programs. So UT and IU would both fit that definition. They would, but they also have to have at least 500 tuition paying students. They have to have more than 50% of those students located in the US. They cannot be a state college or university. So that's where we drop out. And they have to have an endowment of at least $500,000 per student. Okay, so the fact that IU and UT are state universities, not applicable educational institutions. Exactly. Although UT Austin has an estimated endowment of $42.3 billion. That is well over $500,000 per each of its about 52,000 students, but we're not subject to the tax because we're a state university. Um, And IU Bloomington with its smaller endowment of uh, 3.5 billion, Uh, Everything really is bigger in Texas, isn't it? Blame it on the oil. Uh, Exactly. Uh, So if we take our little $3.5 billion endowment and we spread it over our roughly 49,000 students, we're still going to hit that 500,000 per student threshold. But again, IU escapes the tax because they are a state university. So with these examples, the scope of this tax is starting to feel potentially narrow. Mm -hmm. So what do we actually know about the composition of colleges and universities in the U.S. and how many of them are subject to this tax? It's a great question. Uh, According to the National Center for Education Statistics in 2021, there were a total of 5,916 post-secondary institutions. Colleges or universities either do or could participate in a federal financial aid program, which you said was a requirement. That's a lot. 32% of those are public, like IU and UT, so that's their get-out-of-jail-free card, and another 30% were private. Okay, so my rough math tells me that the remaining 38% must be for-profit colleges and universities that are already paying income tax and therefore don't need to bother with this excise tax. Correct, Amundo. Now, on to your second question. How many of those roughly 1,700 private universities are paying this excise tax? Well, so far, uh, not many. No. So there's a report by Melissa Korn and Richard Rubin at the Wall Street Journal. And in 2021, they found that only 33 schools paid the tax and the total amount they paid was only $68 million. And that falls far short of the $200 million that the Joint Commission on Taxation estimated would be generated by the tax annually. Okay. So a few things here. Okay. $68 million tax out of $200 million projected is not great. Nope. That's only 34% of expectations. And last I checked, that would get you an F at a college or a university. I don't know. Great inflation. (laughs) I hope it's not that bad. (laughs) Also, total tax collections last year, total, 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 were over $2 trillion with a T. So do we even care about $200 million of forecasted additional tax revenue? I mean, sure. I'll take take all I can get. But I see your point. Okay, because even if you look at excise taxes only, mm-hmm. they generated $40 billion mm. of tax revenue. So my question to you is why bother with another excise tax that's not really even going to move the needle? Okay, so it seems like you're starting to get at the question of why Congress passed the tax in the first place. I am. Okay. The text of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act itself offers the following reason for the change. Endowment balances have increased dramatically tuition is growing at rates faster than inflation. To quote the legislation, where the endowment of a private college or university has grown so large that it is not commensurate with the scope of the institution's activities in educating students, the committee believes it is appropriate to impose a modest excise tax on the investment income derived from the endowment. All right. So I don't know that I would so much call that a reason. 
for change. It's words. It's words it's put words. together I, in a logical fashion. I, it is a complete sentence, verbs, nouns, all the things. There's punctuation too. That too. <laughs> but to me, it just sounds like uh, you have too much money and we want some of it. Well, yeah, that's what those words are saying. Yes. Okay, <laughs> good. As long as we agree on that. So excise taxes, as I understand them in theory, are at least sometimes enacted to create behavioral changes. Yes. So for example, there are excise taxes on soda and sugary beverages, gambling, cigarettes, alcohol, fuel. The idea being that if you make those products or activities more expensive with taxes, people might purchase less of them. Mm -hmm. So what behavior is this tax trying to change? Well, some argue that taxing these large endowments could prompt the private colleges and universities that have them to start using those endowments instead of holding on to them and getting taxed. So for example, they could eat into their endowments to reduce tuition fees. They could grant more financial aid um, and generally help students overall reduce their amount of debt. Okay, that makes sense. So basically what you're saying is if you wanna avoid the tax, you basically have to spend the money. Yep. And schools could do that either by offering more direct aid to students or providing additional spending on student support. Yes, there are also some who question whether these wealthy private schools actually fulfill their nonprofit approved mission of furthering the education of society broadly. So to understand that, you got to think back to when we talked about public charities and the whole idea was to serve the public. Research from the Urban Institute shows that private schools with the largest endowment for students, schools like Princeton, Harvard and Yale, and Pomona College, Peckham Hens. Indeed. They have the smallest share of students receiving Pell Grants. Pell Grants are for students with exceptional financial needs. So the students who could likely really benefit from the economic mobility that one of those fancy pants colleges could provide. Um, so for schools in the highest decile of endowment per student, only 15% of those students receive Pell funding. That compares to 49% of students at private schools in the lowest decile per student endowments. And so these really which schools are least helping the public. Okay, I get that, not great, but I do need to circle back and say that this is meta. Okay. I was a Pell Grant recipient at a high endowment per student school and they gave us Captain Crunch and frozen yogurt every night as a snack after dinner. So I would say that that endowment money was very well spent. And, and so then why did you leave and go to Florida where they don't even give students books? <laughs> Um, okay, maybe I've made some bogus choices, man. Bogus. We've talked about the impetus for the endowment tax and the fact that it was never intended to be large and that it's even smaller than intended. So let's move on to some of the proposals to modify the tax. It's always disappointing when an endowment that you don't think is <laughs> gonna be large is smaller than expected. Um, all right, this is interesting because since the tax was implemented in 2017, there have been proposals to both increase and repeal the tax. Yeah, that sounds very on brand for Congress right now. Um, let's start with who wants to repeal it. Okay, well, in 2019, Democratic Representative Brendan Boyle and Republican Representative Bradley Byer introduced the, quote, Don't Tax Higher Education Act. I'd also like to point out that they both have first and last names that start with B. Super relevant to this discussion. I thought so. Um, interesting that it's bipartisan. Yes. The bill is pretty straightforward. It simply would repeal the tax. Okay. That, that's it. 
Done. All right. Another proposal out there with a much better acronym is the Changing Our Learning Loans, Endowments, and Graduation Expectations Act, or spell it out, college. College. It was introduced by the other lovable Republican from Florida, Rick Scott. There are really so many lovable Republicans from Florida to choose from. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's a an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> embarrassment indeed. <laughs> So the College Act would require colleges to cover a certain percentage of students' tuitions, regardless of the student's income or need. The required percentage would vary with the size of the college's endowment. So for example, colleges with endowments of $10 billion or more would have to cover 75% of students' tuition. And the bill would apply to both private and public schools. So UT, because of their large endowment, would have to pay 75% of all students' tuition regardless of their need. Representative Dave Joyce, an Ohio Republican, wants to increase the excise tax rate from its current amount at 1.4% to 10%. So increase. And one of my favorites, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, he's coming in hot with the last bill we're going to highlight today. Winner of the snarkiest title, the Ivory Tower Tax Act. Oh, sick burn. This bill would impose a 1% tax on the fair value of the endowment for private colleges with more than $2.5 billion in total endowments and $500,000 per full-time student. It also earmarked this revenue estimated at $2 billion annually to support vocational and apprenticeship training programs, presumably under the argument that not everybody should go to college. It, it's an argument. Um, and this is a tubular example. I'm really excited about this. I know this is surprising you, but I'm going to call Tom Cotton's uh, Ivory Tower Act tubular. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry. That word should not ever come out of your mouth. <laughs> tubular. Stop. Wait for it. To make it stop. It's a, it's a great example of tax policy because we're getting to define so many terms. Okay. Okay. So one new element of this proposed tax is that it would be an earmarked tax. Yes. Which means the revenue that it generates is set aside for a specific purpose. Okay. In this case, funding other educational programs. Yep. Earmarks are actually one potential way to garner political support for tax increases. Mm. So pretty cleverly designed. Mm -hmm. This tax is also potentially a good example of using taxes to redistribute wealth under the assumption that it's going to be the higher income students who go to high endowment colleges, like you were talking about earlier, and lower income students who might benefit more from vocational or apprenticeship programs. Another element of this last proposed tax is that it's a tax on wealth, not income. And that makes it a slippery little sucker because that low rate of 1% can be pretty deceiving. Example, please. Okay, so let's stick with your Pomona College's Peckham Hens. $3 billion endowment. And let's say it generates an 8% return one year. So that's $240 million in income off of the endowment. The current excise tax is 1.4% of the income, so 3.4 million. But the cotton tax would be 1% of the entire endowment. That's 30 million. So a $30 million tax on 240 million of income in the year, if it were an income tax, it would be equivalent to a 12.5% income tax rate. Okay, yep, that's deceptive. And if that cotton tax was passed in addition to the current excise tax, then the poor sage hens would owe $33.4 million in total tax on their $240 million of income, which is just shy of 14%. And let's also note for the record that the Cotton Act allows a carve-out from the tax for universities with a religious mission. 
because religion is definitely something the government should be getting involved with, constitutionally speaking. Okay, so much for neutrality, which is mm-hmm. another attractive aspect of tax policy. Mm-hmm. The Cotton Act would also require private schools with large endowments to spend at least 5% of their endowment to support their educational mission each year. Let's unpack that requirement. Yes, let's. And because I'm the black sheep of my family for being the only one not to attend a Claremont College, let's continue to stick with Pomona and its $3 billion endowment. If they had to spend 5% of their endowment each year on their educational mission, that's $150 million. For 1,500 students, that's 100000 per student each year. And right now, competitive private colleges are estimated to draw only $16,100 annually per student. So this would require $84,000 more in spending per student per year. So what you're saying is that they could have better snacks than frozen yogurt and Captain Crunch. That is exactly what I'm saying, yes. Let's be hella efficient here. Tell me something good about a university endowment excise tax. Go. Uh, okay. I can see some benefit of using tax policy to incentivize colleges and universities to spend money on students. Um, you know, especially if it were in the form of offering tuition reductions or substantial financial aid packages instead of the universities continuing to cum- accumulate wealth over time. Yeah. And there are those who argue that at least some amount of the value of going to elite schools is the brand, the yep. school's name. And that can create a cycle whereby the graduates of these institutions accumulate wealth that they in turn give back to the school. So in some ways the rich get richer and that's not a popular narrative, especially right now. But one sneaky potential bad consequence, which the tax foundation highlighted in their coverage of these taxes, um, is that college tuition is somewhat an example of price discrimination where colleges charge different students what they think they can or will pay. And if you force colleges to cut tuition, either directly through different proposals or indirectly as a way to avoid the endowment tax, you could actually end up mostly benefiting higher income students who could have and would have paid full freight anyway. That is a pretty interesting unintended consequence and I don't think it's totally obvious to everybody. Another big baddie here is that there seem to be pretty easy ways around the tax. Private universities rely on donations along with investment returns on existing assets to grow their endowments. But instead of depositing donations into the endowment fund, they could just as easily use those funds to pay annual expenses. Brigham Young University is a private university with a nearly $2 billion endowment, but it receives significant financial support annually from the associated LDS church. Yeah, and this was pretty interesting to me. There was a 2022 investigation that found that BYU received about 100 million Canadian dollars per year from the Canadian affiliated church alone. That's a pretty large, reliable annual amount um, coming from Canada, which is not even the country where the university is located. So it kind of calls into question whether the university even needs an endowment that could be taxed. All right, to the ugly. Maybe it's just me, but none of this really seems to have a lot to do with tax policy. Mm. So we're not trying to raise revenue to fund government operations because we're admitting that it's going to be small revenue. Right. We're also not really trying to change behavior because let's be real, $68 million of total tax across 33 schools, that averages out to just over $2 million per school. That's not changing anyone's behavior. 
I mean, it might change mine, but I doubt that it's changing Harvard's. No. Now, to be fair, those estimates are for 2021 tax returns, which include some months of the pandemic and pretty poor market performance. But your point stands. Uh, 1.4% may be too small of a rate to really change behavior. Also, colleges earn a lot of income from sources other than their invested endowment, which you kind of spoke to earlier. Uh, Those sources include things like royalties from university Mm -hmm. IP that is not taxed. Mm -hmm. So fun fact, the University of Florida earns about $20 million each year in Gatorade royalties. Wow, okay. So I guess I feel like this entire discussion around endowment taxes is feeling more like politicians' perceptions of the value of higher education, uh, or maybe it's sour grapes towards elite institutions. And generally, it just feels like we're maybe letting ideology and grumpiness taint good tax policy. And you're the only one who's allowed to let their grumpiness affect tax policy discussions. Precisely. Okay. Sadly, uh, I think we can chalk this policy up to all bark and no bite. Um, Like some of the others, like the stock buyback tax, which we'll be talking about, like the limit on the deduction for executive compensation, which we've talked about before. Um, It's it's all like they they don't actually do anything. They don't actually change behavior. It's just political talking points. You get to say that you pass something that actually isn't going to do anything at all. Yeah. So to be clear, reason number one for having a tax, raise revenue. Reason number two for having a tax, change behavior. So if you're going to create a tax that does neither of those two things. Yeah. You're not doing a great job. Nope. This tax is also super targeted. Fewer than 40 colleges are subject to it right now. It kind of reminds me of that minimum tax on book income that we hate so much. Yeah, it's sort of funny when you make that comparison. Um, Many Republicans want to narrowly target rich colleges and universities, perhaps unfairly, while on the other side of the aisle, Dems are narrowly targeting rich companies. At least the Republicans did what we've advocated for and changed the rules of the game instead of creating some arbitrary parallel set of rules. Fair point. Yeah. So what do you think? Final verdict? Rad or gnarly? I'm giving it gnarly thumbs down. That's another classic 80s reference. Two thumbs down. Two thumbs down. And you? No, no, no. I'm the other thumb. Oh, okay. Excellent. Two thumbs down. I'm the Ebert to your Siskel, okay? Thank you. Wait, wait, which which one of us is Gene Siskel? Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. 